So Romans chapter 4, we're kind of turning the page into something different. We're going in a different direction because the first three chapters, if you remember in Romans, as we studied them, it was um, we learned that people lack right standing or righteousness with God because of sin. Not just some people. We spent a long time talking about this. It's just not some of us Gentiles that are suffering in sin. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. The human, uh, the humanity, all of humanity has a sin crisis. And as we turn the page now, we come into chapter 4, and we come into chapter 5, it's going to reveal to us God knew about this and he has had a plan all along to bring us back into right standing, okay? In verse 2 here in chapter 4, Paul notes that Abraham was not justified by works. This is how he starts off. And we remember that Paul was writing to the church in Rome that is all like all of the early churches was primarily made up of Jews. So he's talking to people that would understand this. Abraham, the father of many nations. This is back in Genesis 15, and we'll touch it a little bit. But in Genesis 15, God made a promise to Paul. Uh, to, that would be weird. He made a promise to Abram, and he said, Look out. See the stars in the sky, the sand on the sea? Your descendants will be just like those. And he said this to 75-year-old Abram, who had pretty much all but expired his 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 physical ability to satisfy this. So verse 2, Paul says that Abraham was not justified by works. And verse 4, he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. And I want to stop there because I think that that's so important. Every one of us here either does work or has worked. And when we go to work, it's not a charity. We have an expectation that a payment is going to come. Paul makes this point early on in this conversation because there's a difference between what we're, what's owed to us when we work and those things that are freely given. Okay, um, If we could wipe out all of our debts, all of our sins, where God looks at us righteously, all just by doing good works, which is what a lot of the world feels that they can, while I'm a good person compared to this guy or compared to that guy, then God would be unjust to not just let us in if we were good people. But that is not the standard. And Paul is coming at it hard right at the very beginning. Um, Verse 4, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. Verse 2 confirms that God owes us nothing. Abraham was not the best guy in the world. He married his half-sister. He lied to a bunch of people. You know, he, he, he wasn't the most outstanding, upstanding member of the community. But God said he was faithful, and he counted his faithfulness as righteousness or right standing, okay? And he justified Abram because of his heart condition, all right? I want to take a moment for a word break because you guys know I'm really big. I mentioned it even earlier that I like to take a pause. When I read something, I want to make sure, do I understand what's really 
being said. And the word justified, Abraham is not justified by his works. What does that really mean? Andrew Womack says, it's just as if I'd never sinned. But I liked what your translation said because I think it's a lot more accurate. It really means to be made righteous or to be cleared in a legal sense, to be cleared of all charges against you. So all the charges of sin that we learned about in chapters one, two, and three, God made a plan to erase them. We're acquitted. We no longer have these things that are held against us, okay? The means by which God acquits us, though, is not on the basis of works, but on faith. So during our second week together, I spent some time talking about faith, the word pistis in the Greek, and what does that mean? Do you guys remember that we had talked about this? If not, don't worry, because I'm going to cover it again over here. It took me over 20 years to understand that faith in Scripture, this Greek word pistis, does not mean belief. You just got to have faith, brother. You just got to have faith. And we use this in the English as if you just got to believe that what God said is true. And that's not what the word is. We're justified by faith, but if we don't understand what it is, then can we ever really be justified? Or is it going to put us like a hamster on a wheel where we're running after something through works, but all the time we feel guilty because we know works isn't going to get us there, but I don't know what else to do. That's the place that I came to. And I was running saying, I know this is a work, but I got to be justified. And I just got to believe that it's true and it's faith. And I know I can get there. Let me remind you, the word pistis in the Greek, when you look it up, I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. It's always a gift from God. Faith is always a gift from God. It's nothing that you can stir up yourself. Faith is always given to you from God, by God, as a persuasion a divine persuasion to get you to come into agreement. If I wanted to persuade you to come over to my house, I'd invite you over for some barbecue, or I would invite you over for a good meal, or there's a rodeo on and I'd lay and I'd have you come on over and watch a rodeo with me, okay? I would appeal to your sense of, um, of unity, to appeal to you, to persuade you to come in. That's what faith is. It's a persuasion from God that he gives you something that you don't even know that you want, but you want it. And when he deposits in you, you have a choice. Accept or reject. Okay? But faith is never something that you can produce of yourself. Um, the Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so that they know what he prefers. I know what my, prefer, my wife prefers. When, when I go into a store, it used to, I'm going to be honest with you. You already know this, I think, without me ever saying it there, darling. But we used to go into like Lowe's and Home Depot, and she'd always got to have to go over there and look at the flowers. I got to go see the flowers. I gotta go see the flowers. Cause she likes the flowers. And after almost 30 years, I walk into a place and I see flowers and I'm like, those are pretty flowers. 
And I'm not saying those are pretty flowers because I like them, but I do like them. But my motivation for liking them is because of her. It's not because, oh, I think they're so pretty. I do think they're pretty, but they're even more pretty because she thinks they're pretty. So the persuasion, every time I see a flower, I don't think, oh, it's beautiful. I think my wife would really like that. And if I were to buy that flower and give it to her, or a potted plant and give it to her, it would endear her even more to me for no other reason than she's endured to me. That's what faith is. God gives you something, a promise of his character to persuade you to respond when you didn't even think that you wanted to respond to him in that way. Does that make sense? Ephesians, now I'm going to get into something that I struggled with. I told you just before we started recording over here. I struggled with things like justification, and I struggled with the words faith and grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace that we are saved by faith, and not, not of yourself, it is a gift, a gift of God. So here we see Abram. In, uh, in the beginning of this chapter, Romans 4, that works didn't justify him, but faith did. And in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's a really, really, really hard thing. It has been a hard thing for me to wrap my, my mind around. So was I saved by grace? Or was I saved by faith? Because when you read this chapter, it seems like Abraham was saved because of his faith. No, he was justified by faith. He was acquitted by faith. But he isn't getting to the point of salvation yet. And I want to I wanna explain this to you. Faith works in tandem with grace. But the only way we can get from faith to grace is through belief. To, to be persuaded by that thing that God wanted us to be persuaded to. God deposits faith in us and said, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to go to sleep or are you going to get on up and you're going to pray? Not because praying to me is a work, but because praying to me is like flowers to my wife. Does it endure and endear you to me and to my heart? And when we respond to faith that God has given us, then the grace is there to save us. Okay? Faith empowers grace to be activated. Esther. I was trying to think, what is the best way for me to, to, to think about this? Esther is a wonderful story, right? You got this beautiful lady, the queen of all the land, Vashti, but Vashti had an attitude, okay? And the king said, uh, yeah, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And so these people said, you need to find a new wife. Enter Esther, a beautiful young lady of Jewish descent. We know the story. But where I want to get us to is in the 11th verse of chapter 4 in Esther. <clears throat> Esther's uncle is there and saying, you got to do something. Because they're getting ready to wipe us off the planet. That guy, Hamar... He's a jerk, and he's getting ready to have us all killed. We even know the day it's going to happen. you got to do something. you got to go in and talk to the king. And in verse 11, she goes, 
Yeah, but you know the rule of the land. I can't go before the king if I'm not summoned. Because if I go before him and he didn't call me and he doesn't extend the golden scepter towards me to receive me, the law is I have to die. Her uncle said, so be it. You're in this place for such a time as this. And we don't realize that we're in this place a lot of time for such a time as this. So in chapter 5, she goes before the king, verses 1 and 2. Esther walks in before the king, and it says she's there in the courtroom, and she knows she's not going to be there. And standing there, the king looks up from his his Sudoku puzzle that he's playing, or whatever he's doing, right? He looks up and he sees his beloved wife knowing she knew and he knew that unless he extended that scepter, she was dead. Does this sound like Romans chapter 1, 2, or 3 at all? Does it sound like she knew she deserved to die by the laws and the rules that were established. She knew she was going to die. And yet, there she stood in the courthouse anyway, and he extends the scepter. What a wonderful illustration of what we're talking here about in Romans, okay? Esther comes before the king knowing she deserves death, but Esther came in faith, believing that the king would extend grace, his golden scepter, to her because she knew in faith, she knew that he already favored her. Okay? If she didn't have that confidence, she could pretty much assume that she was dead. It's the same way that scripture tells us that we can go boldly before the throne of grace because we know his heart towards us is to prosper us and not harm us. It's to save us and not kill us, okay? Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God because for anyone who comes before him must know number one, that he is God, and number two, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. If we don't have in our paradigm an understanding that God's desire is to reward us, then we'll never go to the throne room. We'll never go. Because we, th we see him as sitting up on his throne getting ready to you know, cast stones at us. But we need to see him the way Esther saw the king and go boldly before the throne. And if I die, I die. But I know that guy is madly in love with me in the same way God is madly in love with us. So faith is coming into agreement that God will show us favor and we will be saved. He'll extend that golden scepter to us because we know that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. But grace is the actual extension of the scepter, okay? So that's the difference between faith and grace. Faith says, I know that he loves me and I'm deserving of death, but I have faith that his love for me is greater than anything that I've ever done. Grace is when he actually extends that to us, that salvation to us.
Abram understood that his body was not able to produce a child. 75 years old. And he's actually 100 before he actually has a child. Yet God said he would be the father of many nations out of his own seed. God implanted his seed of faith into Abraham at that time. Okay, Abram at the time. When God said, you're going to be the father of many nations, what this chapter here says is faith said, uh, uh, Abram said, you're the creator of the universe. You can do anything you want. If you say it's going to be so, it's going to be so. Okay? Verses 9 through 22 say this. And not being weak in faith. This is here in chapter 4, Romans 4, in verses 19 through 22. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. It says he didn't even consider it. When God said, you're going to be the father of many nations, Abram said, okay. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. Remember, faith, that word faith, means a deposit from God as a persuasion after his own heart. But he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised him, what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now for what I really wanted to share. We're not there yet. Not there yet, brother. I'm sorry. In Romans 4, in the New King James, this word faith appears 10 times. How many would agree that if God says something to you 10 times, it's probably important. Okay? I would. <clears throat> Abram believed God even though his body was dead. So why do we doubt when God tells us something? Go on over there and talk to that person by the bubble gum in the shopping, in the, in the, in the shopping center over there. Why do we doubt? If God says do it, Abraham was 75 years old, no way he could have kids, let alone wait 24, 25 more years to give it a shot. Why, when God gives us promises in his word and they jump inside of us when we read them, the scripture comes alive when we read it. Those are promises from God. They're deposits of faith. Why don't we believe it? I'm saying me. Maybe you guys are good. <laughs> Do we not believe that God loves us and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him? Maybe. Do we not believe that he wants to reward us? Do we not understand that when he speaks, things happen? Here's a baseline for what I'm saying there. That was not me. I didn't do that. Um, as Christians, doctrinally, we believe, because it's in Scripture, that God is a creator he created the heavens and the earth. And I would never ask anybody to raise a hand to say whether or not you believe that. In Genesis chapter 1, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it just goes on and on and on and on about everything that he created. And then he created us. So maybe philosophically we could understand it, but we don't really understand how we can bring nothing out of something. I mean, something out of nothing. But as a Christian doctrine... God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so he's a creator. Can we at least agree that he's a creator? Mm -hmm. Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Hebrews 11.3 says, your belief, your understanding of his creation in Genesis 1 is not of yourself. It's of faith. The reason you can't explain how he brought something out of absolute nothing is because you just believe it in faith. He said it's true. It buried in you and you're saying, I don't get it, but it's true. By faith, we understand that the worlds were created. Okay? So God created everything out of nothing but by the word of his mouth. So if God is a creator, follow the logic here. If God is the creator, then whenever he speaks something, whenever he speaks anything, even if it was absolutely impossible for it to happen, the very fact that he spoke it as a creator, then that thing, no matter how impossible it was, would happen just because he spoke it. He upholds the world by the power of his word. He spoke it, and that word spoken by God contains within itself the creative power to be the very thing it is. One of the, uh, one of the scriptures I remembered as I was typing that up is Jesus coming in before the crucifixion. He's coming on in, and people are laying to palm trees, and they're screaming, Hosanna, and crying out to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are like, hey, can't you hush these people up? kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And Jesus said, if they were to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. And I'm going to tell you this right now, based on what I understand of creation, that he said it, and if they stopped, you would start hearing the chorus of Hosanna from a bunch of stones, because he spoke it. So Abraham understood this. I think the childlike faith of Abraham was this. God said it. He said, pack up your stuff and go to the land that I'll show you. Okay. I'm pack up my stuff. You're going to be the father of many nations. Okay. Take your son to the mountain that I will show you and give him as an offering. Okay. He just had a childlike faith. Isn't that what Jesus said we're supposed to have? Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And I, I thought further about it. Can a donkey speak? If God says donkey speak, the donkey's going to speak. God has this creative ability to make things happen that just wouldn't otherwise happen. So when God speaks, even if the thing was impossible before, it's not only possible, but not one word that God speaks will fall to the ground. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 say, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. And in uh, Isaiah again 40 verse 8 says, the grass, the grass withers and the flower fades. Sorry, baby. But the word of our God will stand forever. Okay. Here in Romans chapter 4, we see that Abraham received the faith and favor from God. Abraham understood, as we see here what I just read in verses 19 through 22, that if the creator of the universe said something, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
<sighs> practical application time. One of the things that I, I strive every time I have one of these meetings is, what does this mean to me? Where am I gonna go with this information? Whenever we see the word faith, and we look up that word in the Strong's and we see that it's the word pistis, first of all, we have to understand that we can't achieve that on our own. God's desire is that we have more and more faith, but the quantity of faith doesn't matter. It means we quicker, we, we more quickly turn to that thing that God says, because if he says it, it's a guarantee. That's part of the word pistis, is it's a guarantee, a legal term that means I've said it, it's going to happen. So whenever we see faith, we got to stop thinking that it means belief, that I can strum it up. You either have it or you don't, and if you have it, God gave it to you. Okay, um, when God says something to me, I'm reading the word, something jumps off the page. When he says something to me, it's an invitation for me to receive it and to make it mine. Okay, it's an invitation to go someplace deeper with him. And when we receive a truth from God, that's faith. When he gives us a truth, it becomes ours. It's a gift guaranteed to happen. So, just as he did with Abraham, God is a rewarder. Abraham understood this. And what we need to do going forward is we need to understand God wants to tell us stuff. He wants to reveal himself to us. But when he does, we have a choice. We can accept that what he says with childlike faith and say, God, you said it. Or we can say, yeah, it seems a little out, out there for me. I don't know how he's going to be able to do that. If the question ever arises or the statement ever arises when you read something in Scripture, I don't know if God's going to be able to do that. What is it, too hard for him? Would you rather see a donkey talking? Come on. What are you going to do? When a child, we have kids, and one of the things that I did later on after the first one was out of the house over there is every other year we would go on a, on a, um, a Christmas vacation. And I didn't always tell the kids where we we're going. A lot of times to just get in the car and let's go. And they had excitement because they knew we were going someplace, but they didn't know where we were going for Christmas. And it was always the trip. And then we'd have this or that also for them as well. If I told my kids that we were going to Disneyland, they wouldn't check to see, do you have the tickets already purchased? Where are we going to be staying over there? Where's the hotel we're going to be staying? It didn't matter to them. They just knew when dad said, we're going out, what? Oh, yeah, and they're partying. And it could be like the end of November, the beginning of November, and they're celebrating and everything else. That's why I didn't tell them, because they'd bother me for too much. But that's the kind of faith that God puts in us. He is never going to give anything to us, a desire in us that we don't want or that's not good for us. And whenever we try to factor in, well, how is that going to happen? I don't believe that can happen. Then we're, we're going to miss what God is doing. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. Your decision is whether you will accept the fact that he wants to bless me. Because as it says in Psalm 67, bless me, O Lord that all the nations will praise you. 
That's why he wants to do it. He loves you. He loves each and every one of us. But when we accept a blessing from him, like I'm going to be the father of many nations, think about the father of many nations for a moment. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all consider Abraham to be Father Abraham. Everyone. And how many Christians are there? How many Jews are there? How many Muslims are there? Abram became the father of many nations. And he didn't ask. I guess technically he did ask, how is it going to happen? But he wasn't be like, well, how's that going to happen? It's more like, hey, time's a ticking, you know? I believe you, but time's a ticking. God wants to credit our decisions on righteousness. Believe God as a rewarder in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.